Danta Bhumi Sutta, the Majjhiminikaya. <coughs> I won't read the whole thing, but the gist of it is that it begins with a um, um, somebody's asking a question to this this novice, saying, "Could you tell me the Buddha's Dharma?" And then the Buddha, the novice, says, "Well, I, I don't think I really can." Uh, he says, actually, the question is, um, I've heard that a bhikkhu who abides here diligent, ardent, and resolute can achieve unification of mind. Samadhi, kagata. So he says, I'd like that. Um, tell me how you do it. So he says, oh, I don't think I could explain it. Anyway, the the, the uh, prince keeps asking this novice, so he, so he does te- give him the teachings and uh, um, the prince says, oh no, it's been, that's impossible, couldn't do that. <laughs> so then the, the, the novice goes to the Buddha and says, well, I, this is what happened. And the Buddha said, well, it's, it's not possible that somebody who has not got a, a mind that developed renunciation could really um, develop any samadhi. So you're talking to the person just was not in the right didn't have the scope for it because they don't know anything about renunciation. This is a prince who normally gets everything they want. Anything they want, they go and get it. So, and um, it's impossible that such a one could know, see, or realize that which can only be known through renunciation, seen through renunciation, attained through renunciation, and realized through, through renunciation. And he gives the simile of these taming a wild elephant um, how you, the, you take the, the tr- elephant that's already trained goes out into the forest and they tether the wild elephant to the to the to the tame elephant um, then that enables them to bring to, to calm down the wild elephant. So this is the simile is there to talk about just kind of tra- uh, a basic training of the mind. It says uh, when they, when you link the, the tame or the, the which is the simile for that that in the mind which is already conducive to the wildness. The elephant tamer addresses the wild elephant with words that are gentle, pleasing to the ear and lovable. Let's go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. When the forest elephant is addressed by such words, he listens, gives ear, and exerts his mind to understand. So that sense of that kind of quality of metta and encouragement, you know, Calming, like I was saying yesterday, just the mantra to oneself: "This is okay. This is okay." Just training oneself. Once one has, of course, tethered the mind to the the practice to the dhamma. So it's not everything's okay. Do what you like. It's being <laughs> it's being restrained in this particular dhamma and discipline held there. And staying within that, and then just calming and relaxing the agitations and the waywardness of the heart, 
the covetousness and the uh, complainingness of the heart, just not beating it, but just tethering it and just relaxing and calming that. Then the elephant tamer trains the wild elephant further. <clears throat> he says, take up, put down. When the king's elephant obeys his tamer's orders to take up and put down and carries out his instruction, the elephant tamer trains him further thus. Go forward, go back. And trains him further. Get up, sit down. And then the elephant tamer trains him further in the task called imperturbability. He ties a giant plank to his trunk. A man with a lance in his hand sits on his neck. Men with lances in their hands surround him on all sides. And the elephant tamer himself stands in front of him holding a long lance pole. When the elephant is being trained in the task of imperturbability, he does not move his forelegs or his hind legs. He does not move his forequarters or his hindquarters. He does not move his head, ears, tusk, tail or trunk. The king's elephant is able to endure blows from spears, blows from swords, blows from arrows, blows from other beings and the thundering sounds of drums, kettle drums, trumpets and tom-toms. Being rid of all faults and defects, purged of flaw, he is worthy of the king. In the king's service, considered one of the factors of a king. So that's the, the way the kind of poetic or metaphorical um, description. So that calming down and then testing, you know, being tested by the difficulties within us, difficulties around us. And if you like, being able to stand one's ground on the, in terms of the Dhamma, being able to keep one's mind steady uh, through all the various tumults, sounds of tom-toms and kettle drums and the things that go on in the mind, and even the things around us, the sounds of chainsaws, the sounds of people banging away, um, sounds of, of from the kitchen... <coughs> Sounds that delight the ear, sounds that antagonize the ear. Just being able to stay steady in that and not be running out, uh, attacking things or goring things or going wild. So then the Buddha goes through it again and says, um, The Buddha arises in the world accomplished and fully enlightened and goes forth and then disciplines, saying, be virtuous and restrained with the restraint of the Patimoka, be perfect in conduct and resort, trained by undertaking the training precepts, and then disciplines him further, come guard the door of your sense faculties, on seeing a form with the eye, do not grasp at its signs and features, since if you were to leave the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade you. Practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye faculty. Undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And similarly for the other senses. Now he doesn't actually say close your eyes. He says, on seeing a form with the eye. So this is actually with the eyes open and being able to separate what the actual visual experience is from what the mind makes of it. Since uh, I think in one of the other scriptures, 
the Buddha said if, if, it, if it was a matter of just not having any senses then a blind, deaf and dumb man would be completely enlightened but it, it's not a matter of not having them because it's, it's a matter of, of recognizing the difference between the sense contact and the volition the push and the pull of the mind that, that goes on with that so uh, one recognizes there is a, a boundary here we some things we determine not to look at or put attention to you know things that are too powerful or potent but then also recognizing that essentially we have to come to terms not with the eye but with the mind the mind's um, raging and passion and often you can do that in terms of holding the eye steady and contemplate the difference between a visual experience of form and the inner push or pull or agitation and if you just go to the, the visual experience itself and focus on that, on what is seeing the sense of seeing itself the sense of just light and images coming into and you make a almost like really place your attention there on the seeing so that the mind doesn't have the room to catch hold so this is mindfulness isn't it being fully seeing the seeing when you see rather than half seeing and imagining half seeing and inferring seeing mixed up with uh, aims and ambitions but just to see what is, can be seen and contemplate seeing itself is just void uh, it's not got any um, defilement in it restraint then the disciple the, the, to target the disciplines the disciple further be moderate in eating reflecting wisely you should take food neither for amusement nor for intoxication that's for fun I guess or for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness but only for in, the endurance and continuance of the body thinking you know, I would just terminate the old feelings of pain of hunger without erasing the new feelings of satiation or um, um, abundance and just live healthy and blameless so when it's both healthy physically and blameless in the one one has not uh, got caught up with the quality of greed acquisitiveness um, you know, which, is, which is not worthy of respect anyway so this is an important part of cultivation to be able to reflect wisely so you, you know having pulled oneself away from the, the or blind impulses of the eye then there's a little bit more space to to actually consider what one's doing you know, so the sense of sense restraint itself begins to generate enough in itself generates enough space for you to be able to have the mind to, to consider properly when there's no restraint the mind can't consider properly it can only consider in terms of how do I get this or what a pain it will be if I don't get it you know the mind is glued to the object when you lever it away then the mind goes okay 
Now, what's the purpose of this? Uh, what's the meaning of this? How much do I need of this? What's the use of this? What's the training with regard to this? So, this is sense restraint allows one the privilege of having a, an agile, <coughs> inquiring mind. Without the sense restraint, without that cultivation, the mind doesn't have room to, to turn. It's, it's, it's boxed right in. Then he disciplines him further, be devoted to wakefulness during the day while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. First watch of the night, purify your mind of obstructive states. In the middle watch of the night, you should lie down the right side, the lion's pose, fully aware, denoting in your mind the time for rising. After rising in the last watch of the night, walking back and forth, and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. So the sense of really uh, like a quality of keenness that's aroused where we don't, when the mind has some agility to it, you actually want to be here because it is interesting, you can work, you're not continually stymied and overwhelmed in life. So there's natural that quality of, well, I, I want to be out working, you know, this is where my life really is, rather than I want to sink out of it. Then to be possessed of mindfulness and full awareness when going forward and returning, looking ahead and looking away, flexing and extending the limbs, wearing the robes, eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting, defecating, urinating, sitting, standing, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. <laughs> so this is a kind of holistic practice. I mean, you know, it just... Obviously, that list is meant to say in everything. Be possessed of mindfulness and full awareness. So, it's giving you quite clear encouragement that all of this, uh, you know, a normal restrained life can be covered with mindfulness and full awareness. Full awareness is sampajanya, mindfulness sati. Sati is the thing that brings, bears something in mind. It's like a um, points, this, this, stay with that. And Sampajanya, full awareness, also translated as clear comprehension. It means it's something from that seed of attending to a particular point rather than, you know, interpreting and adding and analyzing and commenting, just that's that then that means that the that potency of mind, which would normally add more images and interpretations and comments and sub-comments, is, all that is curtailed, so that potency can then just spread over the, over the activity and sensitize to it. We fully comprehend it, which, or fully aware of it, which is not a matter of having a lot of thoughts about it, so much as like your whole sensitivity, receptive system can spread over the activity and take it in and feel it and know it and come to terms with it. It's rather like your mindfulness establishes a point and Sampajanya broadens that point to cover whole ground 
you know, so you've got a very firm, widespread, you're really sensitizing. They, they are, in a way, they're co-relatives of Vitaka Vichara, which operates um, in a more limited way. Uh, Vitaka is the act of deliberately conceiving of something, and Vichara is the act of turning that around in the mind, like considering it, what's it like, what's it feel like. So, Sampajana and Sati play, have the same relationship to each other. Sati places the attention on a point, present moment, in full awareness, covers the whole of that and sensitizes and what's this, what's happening here. Primarily it notices the arising of subsiding of what, of what, what we are aware of, the arising of subsiding of things. It's a prim- one of the primary things that you sense. Uh, then discipline the further resort to a secluded resting place, forest, root of a tree, mountain, ravine, hillside cave, charnel ground, jungle thicket, open space, a heap of straw. So there's quite a range of residences there, possible. Uh, anywhere I think is what it's saying where you can just sit on your own Um, so there's like from quite um, these are very low heap of straw is not desirable residence Uh, but you can even use an open space in the middle of the field a tree, mountain, ravine, cave. So, kutis, rooms, anywhere where you can just sit without having to engage in things. Uh, and it means the, it certainly means the senses are open. Still got the eye, in, nose, tongue, body, mind. You're not called upon to get in, uh, to get involved with lots of activities. So, this is for meditation, isn't it? Mm. Then returning from our arms round, folds one's leg crosswise, sets the body erect and establishes mindfulness before him. Abandoning covetous for the world, he abides with the mind free from covetousness. Purifies his mind from covetousness. So that you can recognize how when you reflect on it, just how uncomfortable it is to keep hankering after this and that. Mm. Uh, the, the discomfort of having a mind that's always, well, what about more of this? I fancy some of that. Could I have some of this? Could I want, you know, that thing. It's just the, the activity of that uh, is, is uncomfortable. Um, so this is something that, you know, in this whole path of renunciation, you begin to what, acknowledge what makes renunciation possible is the feeling that it's more comfortable to just let go and relax and, you know, take what comes than to be angling, persuading, pushing, manipulating things to come my way. Mm. Mm. It's just to have the mind doing that, even to uh, 
you know, you can be asked. Sometimes you just it's too it's more comfortable just to say, well, whatever, you know, what do you want to drink? Well, what's there? Yeah. So I certainly find this in my own practice, my own life. People often ask me what I want or what I need, and I really can't think of very much apart from you know kind thought maybe. <laughs> You know, or 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 a bit more piece of uh, afternoon off, or something like that. You know, a bit more space, because um, it just it, it's it's almost like the mind doesn't want to go into a place of having to figure out what kind of things I'd like or not like. Whereas it, I went to the opticians the other week, that was a disaster because they kind of thought, well, maybe I could have a pair of glasses. Uh, my eyes aren't so good. So I went to the place where they, they have all the different kinds of glasses. He said, well, there's these frames, and there's these, or you can have these. Well, there's this range. So I looked at him. He said, well, if you don't like those, there's this range. There's like hundreds of these eyeball kind of things looking at me. With different glasses, different frames. I couldn't see any one that somehow was a better shape than the other <laughs> shapes. So then I said, "Oh, forget it. <laughs> I can start. I can see all right. <laughs> it's easier that way. <laughs> Just didn't want to, have to get my head into thinking, what, what, what do you want? <laughs> Next time I'll take somebody with me. <laughs> the idea of looking at yourself in a mirror, but I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what the real me. <laughs> so." Just you know, that mind doesn't want to bother. You know, if you think oh, it's just easier to just let things be the way they are. <laughs> Abandoning ill will and hatred, he abides with the mind free from ill will, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. This is a, another aspect of the training. So, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings uh, it means it's sort of some room to consider, isn't it? Like other other people, and then even other creatures. How we give up a little bit of our self-centre as to what is immediately what I like or don't like, or for my convenience, or works okay for me. Into well, what what works for your welfare, or what's comfortable for you? Um, or a little spider who lives under under here and comes out every most evening pujas <laughs> and I kind of bow to this little spider and you know, runs back in again. Oh, we've got quite a nice relationship with this little creature in there. Um, you know, so that that that's the creatures who live around the rabbits and the animals and so on. And probably you know, even more to the point, one's fellow humans. So when we're living in in communities, the big test and training in that way, isn't it? Like, well, what's what's for the welfare of the whole, or for other people, or you know, if you're the senior monk, you think, well, what's if they're only garakas, only garakas? You see, people who might be not 
so associated with, you actually think a little bit more about. You know, so not only oneself or even the people close to you, but the people who are a bit further away, you think a little bit more about. Really, you've got to, you know, because the mind tends to naturally consider people perhaps you, you know, know for longer term or longer period of time or closer to. That's what it does naturally. So then just extend it. What about newcomers or guests or visitors or? You know, push it a little bit further to extend that that uh, thing. What's for their welfare? How do they see it? So the, the sense of just shifting the volitional center, you know, from one point of what I want into something that's a little bit more rounded, and there's a great blessing in not being so concerned about oneself. It's not just for other people's welfare, it's all for one's own. If you're always thinking about what I want, what's for me, it's not a very broad um, abiding place. <laughs> it can turn into, a, into an abyss, you know, just endlessly you know, wanting things. So it does help to develop a sense of a great heart. The heart has to expand. Um, and there's many blessings that come from the great heart. Yeah. One isn't so narcissistic, one isn't so demanding, one is patient, one is more equanimous, one isn't thinking and planning for, for oneself. So the, the volitional qualities quieten down and level out into what, it, what is wholesome and skillful. What's beautiful. Abandoning sloth and torpor abides free from sloth and torpor, percipient of light, mindful and fully aware. Abandoning restlessness and remorse, he abides unagitated. Abandoning doubt, he abides having gone beyond doubt, unperplexed about wholesome states. He purifies his mind from doubt. So there's a seems to be like a progression here from covetousness, which is very a little something we often have a little more you know control over. You know, because we, we can feel that push out and then we can let go of that. Ill will have something just kind of sweeps over us, but we can clean that by deliberately um, bringing up metta as a so ill will is is often there as a protective thing. We, we bristle in order to protect ourselves. We dismiss others in order to, to seal ourselves off from being affected or hurt. So metta karuna is considered to be one of the protective meditations. It, it acts as a field whereby um, when you are in a in state of, of kindness and compassion, then things don't get on, don't get on your nerves so much. If you're depressed and irritable, then everything gets on your nerves. Somebody coughs next door and you feel irritated. When you have a heart of loving kindness and compassion, these things don't, they don't affect you. you know, it really is. And it's something that you, know, you have to put effort into. It's not just a matter of, of stopping something. It's a matter of really arousing something and practicing it for your own protection. Um, because of that, 
uh, one is able to, because of that arousal in that particular way, he's not really a lot of doing things so much as just arousing the heart, sloth and torpor, the stickiness and sluggardliness of the, of the heart is brushed off. You can abandon that. Uh, and the mind feels light, the percipient of light. There is almost like a, a luminosity that you can half see. It's not, not like the eyes seeing it, but the mind can see this luminous quality, which is the, the sign, of, like a, a luminosity, which is a sign of what literally means bright karma. You know, there's, there's a certain kind of radiance that you can begin to detect in the mind. And so that means you don't, you don't get the sinking down uh, uh, dull states. Dull is literally dull. You know, it's not no light in it. Because of that, one's restlessness and remorse, you know, unagitated, because you have begin to have a, a quality, a sign, if you like, you can then rest upon. Yeah. So there is a shift from the resting upon sense contact, which is the way we our attention normally rests. We can't find external sense contact. We find internal sense contact in thinking or remembering. You know, so something comes up, your mind always sticks to that, and the restlessness is the continual searching for some thought or object or memory or plan to stick onto. And it's rather like you know, we'll always do that unless there's something else there to rest upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it has to rest upon the very luminosity of the mind itself is what you begin to rest upon. You begin to rest upon the quality of awareness, the, the, the sensitive, the, um, the brightness of that. So that, that restlessness is quelled. This actually, this fundamental quality of restlessness in, in its subtle forms is one of the last of the fetters that, that, to go for an arahant. Mm. The, the, having to have some sort of mind state or mindset to stick to. The luminosity of mind gets finer and finer till even uh, luminosity itself is too, is not really the word for it. But at this stage, there is almost a, a tangible um, quality that you can abide in. Because of this, one is unperplexed about wholesome states and gone beyond doubt with the recognition of the real practical, not just theoretical or idealistic, but the real pragmatic, palpable firmness uh, and real, you know, a, a greater firmness than anything else that can provide. Yeah. Like the normal senses provide crumbling ground, and the quality of brightness of heart provides the steadiest ground that you can find. So one is no doubt about them. And so because of that, one's always eager to find ways to, to cultivate the wholesome and 
firm up one's ground. Cultivating wholesome is not just a matter of doing good deeds in an external way, it's a matter of um, doing that and refraining from doing harmful things, but even more so, developing mindfulness and full awareness so that you really can get the essential quality of stabilizing, resting on the, the goodness. Just to skip forward. And then the Tathagata abides saying, abide contemplating the body as a body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. Abide contemplating feelings and feelings, but do not think thoughts connected with feelings. Contemplate mind as mind, but do not think thoughts connected with mind. Abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects, but do not think thoughts connected with mind objects. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, enters and abides in the second jhana. So this is the second jhana, so one can very well infer that the abandoning of the five hindrances is is the uh, ground for the first jhana. That is one through that has found a place or a ground, this brightness, where your mind comes into stability, one-pointedness. And from there it's a matter of, of, uh, of um, refining further. So, contemplating the body as a body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. So, in a practice of mindfulness and full, comp- or full awareness, clear comprehension, um, sometimes thinking process is is used to more or less to like putting a tag on a wild animal. You put one of these tags on it so you know where it is. Uh, and so vitaka is that tagging, where you just tag something, or breathing in, breathing in, breathing out. So you use that to, to so you know. You keep connecting your uh, awareness to to what to the object, knowing the tendency of the the mind to the volition to run away. Volitional impulses run out. So you keep using volition with this by focusing and reminding, firming up. You know, whatever your meditation theme is, and vichara exploring it. We come into establishing the ground of our practice, then it's like uh, something it takes you deeper past the immediate contact impressions into uh, what receives contact impressions. What receives what what does the seeing? What receives the seeing? What receives the hearing? What receives the thinking? So, with the very when you uh, restrain the vitaka vichara, just a very simple pointing and handling, then you get more opportunity not to. 
add to the qualitative interpretation of an experience, which is what, what is experiencing experience? Mm. Much as can be said about Vitaka Vichara as a, medit- as a meditation tool, as often as not, the Buddha talks about restraining it and calming it down rather than really developing it a lot. Use it in a limited way. Ideally, you whittle it down. It's just the ability to note, bear with, and sense, sense out what's happening. What is it that where the where the thought where is the place where the thoughts land? Just as with the external senses, the eye, there could be the, the seeing, the sense object, the eye organ itself, and the consciousness that carries that sense object to the eye, carries an impression. And that consciousness can carry with it the various volitional tendencies, uh, disgust, delight, and everything in between the two, the pulling forward and the pushing away. But the purifying the consciousness, so it's just pure consciousness itself. So those, those, inter- those volitional tendencies are relaxed. So when you try to cultivate your mindfulness around an object, it's important to to recognize that the volitional qualities have to be relaxed. Some of the the craving or the covetousness or the despair or the irritation or the, you know, all that has to be purified. So we're using a meditation object, walking up and down, something simple enough that you can get to it without a huge strain and effort. Something, in fact, that comes towards you, you might say. So I use that as uh, a helpful reflection on, on walking meditation or sitting, just developing awareness, like what is sitting, what is walking, was like that question, what, where is this happening? What's it happening to? How do I know I'm walking? How do I know I'm sitting? What, what really touches me? And then just you know, feeling what is actually touched by that. These, some of these meditations are tactile. They are about the sense of something striking your skin or moving through your body. So it's like tuning up the receptive being touched rather than the active to, to doing it and trying to find it. What are you touched by? So that you know receptive quality, the volition of that is much softer, isn't it, than the do it, make it, build it, develop it quality. And so there's a sense of lightening the volitional qualities so that we are uh, 
begin to relax some of the old karma tendencies that there are. This is a kind of like a skillful means because having established that place of receptivity, then you can fine tune into dis- discernment. Right? So receptive, then just receptive in the moment uh, to being touched in the moment, letting it come to you in a moment, moment of time. The quality of that sensitivity of full awareness gets cramped if you have too many agendas about what you should be feeling or, or you know, uh, what you need to work with. So the sense of spiritual inquiry means that the, there's a sense of openness to that, to what's, what's occurring. Mm. And we might just stay within the the four foundations of mindfulness are the resort, like what's occurring bodily. How is that sensed? What's the feeling? What's the mindset, mind state that arises? What are the dhammas that arise? So around that, we get very uh, attuned This only becomes possible when you relax the I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going here in a week's time, I'm doing that next year, this, that and the other, and I'm going to be here, and all that. Because the, in that case, you, the volitional quality is much too active. You can't really sensitize and receive anything. So even if you're imagining, you know, I want to develop skillful qualities, right, you know, I want to get more focused on this or that or the other. Even that agenda tends to have a, a cramping effect. And these things are to be, you know, the, if you like, development on the path is done quite carefully, really establishing your ground. What is it? Where do you meditate from? You know, do you meditate from a place where the, the view is clear, where the, the, there's, there's ampleness of heart, where it has... Uh, developed, one has let go of consciousness, one has developed loving kindness, one does have that sense of a reference of what bright karma really is and in that place you, you stand there or you sit there, you receive that you're not in a hurry, you're not panicked you're not despondent and then you can tune in what's happening when I walk up and down what's happening in the bodily sphere 
This is meditation. How does the body know itself? So I make a strong point of trying to really develop the body in and of itself so that you know looking down on the body from a place in the head or from an idea structure you're really going to the tactile senses the energy flows the subtle inner senses of the body so you know the body is more than just the visual object as a whole um, you know, dimensional experience that attunes, that wavers, that trembles, that cringes, that seems to expand and want to be here and seems to want to withdraw and contract and grow stiff and grow rigid this internal senses and you work with it, you make it pliable so the body's full receptivity is present and then you can you can meditate on the, on the bodily senses you're not always fighting against your thought formations the simplest ways of doing this breathing in, breathing out walking up and down sitting, you know, the bases but to really tune to that quality of receptivity and value in bodily life so that would be a nice idea So, bright karma and the cessation or dis- dissolving of karma is one way of describing the Buddhist path. And meditation is, this is a very immediate way of, of bringing that around. The bright karma of uh, every clear intention that we have. So, karma is based upon intentionality, every clear mindful intention we have in some way um, has a therapeutic effect it's keeping up that quality of bright clear uh, intentionality in what we're doing Mm. when we're meditating when we're not meditating when we're sitting still intentionality not really a lot to do so this is where it gets confusing or foggy people what are we supposed to be doing when we're sitting here <clears throat> mm. the very doing energy has to be volition has to be moderated and uh, calmed relaxed but given confidence joy uh, trying to, in a way bright calm is, is to do with 
with uh, healing volition, you know, volition that heals, and also healing volition itself. So the volition is not wild, panicky, anxious, worried, forceful, dithering, doubtful, wayward, but just this clear, kindly, you know, moment at a time. And the more we do that, the more that's going to build up residue of brightness, of confidence and clarity. This really, you know, is, is the basic bottom line of what we call samatha, which is the settling, stabilizing, calming effect of karma. Through, through, through uh, volition. And insight is when, there is when there is that sense of steadiness and calm and brightness, we contemplate this, this very sphere of experience that has arisen, has arisen. It's, it's a mirage, you know, it has no substance to it, it doesn't belong to anybody, it's conditionally arisen. Uh, but that's all there is. So without holding on to something else, one is able to see through or sense through that which has arisen. It's not that we hold on to a view or a thought or an opinion about it, because that was, that's another form of holding on. We just allow the ground to melt. So the dissolution of karma, rather than seeking another position, which is more karma, you know, in order to, to um, even conceive of what's going on. You don't have to understand it. So enormous amounts of ink get spilt upon trying to define what nibbana is, and <laughs> you realise that very action is is not nibbana, because <laughs> it itself is more mental karma or, or thinking karma, and uh, you know emotional karma, mental karma. He's talking about three aspects of karma formations, the bodily, the what's called mental, though pr- probably is good to use something like emotional or emotive, because the way we tend to conceive of what mental is, but our affective emotive sense, our that uh, karma formation, that is we are, we have volitional impulses, we're moved, we're excited, we're depressed. That's, that's the trigger for karma, that's the volition of it, isn't it? That's what we call citta, sankara. Uh, the karma impulse, the sankara is a karma impulse based around the heart. And then the conceptual karma, vajji sankara, which is a conceptual impulse, that initial thought which wants to know, define, be clear, plan, organize, understand, get it together. You know, there's a volition behind that, and yet the very agency is, is the conceiving agency of mind. Mm. So, but that's called vajji sankara, it's to do with speaking and thinking, jitta sankara, mood, emotion, bodily sankara, is the, just the, the bodily impulse 
body energy um, in, its, in its various forms. It's both an energy and a whole way of, of relating to the energy, to be excited by it, to be by its um, brightness or its vigor, or um, caught in its dullness or its erraticness, the way the body does in its kind of hormonal changes and um, biological changes and sexual energies and metabolism and all that. Things that affect us, that gives a feeling of being this body. How this body really affects me, how I how I sense myself in this body is the, the area of kaya sankara. So it's not uh, the thing we can see with the eye. It's not, you know, meat and bones. It's it's the whole formative, active, impulsive experience of body. So when we work on karma. We're trying to, in a way, work on all these three these three aspects of it, these three ways in which karma manifests. And the residues that are there, which is the habits we have in terms of our thinking and our impulse to think and, our atti- and the way we think, uh, the, the particular habits we've laid down whether an incessant thinker or a worrying thinker or someone who's very proud of their thinking, you know, really enjoys thinking, uh, loves just tying things up in little packages and uh, giving dumber talks. <laughs> 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 like me. <laughs> I was trying to practice benign stupidity. Or you, when you're thinking, just kind of goes in spurts and then goes backwards and forwards. You confuse thinker. Can't get you know, which is very ragged, uncomfortable. We're also working on so we're trying to train the thinking mind to just 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 do what's sufficient. Do the job clearly. Yes, just notice, just conceive this is breathing in, this is breathing out this is walking if you don't make that verbal note, at least that sense of clarifying one's attention being able to get in touch know what we're doing really is, is the bottom line of it but in a very moment to moment way the body is this it feels like this warmth of it, the solidity of it, the pressures and so on. Jitta Sankara, the quality of uplift or depression, the raggedness of that, the karma we have in terms of that, what things do uplift us or depress us, make us angry, make us sad. and the residues we have for that, so that this particular situation always makes me feel like this. So we say, it makes me feel like this. <laughs> As if, rather than, you know, there's a, there's a triggering. Uh, it literally does make me, doesn't it? 
you know, some the sense of I am comes up with that. Yeah. Mm. Very powerfully. Mm. So what are the residues? What are the familiar emotional territories that we get into? Even if our emotional territory is one of dismissing emotional territory, that's an emotional that's an emotional action. Mm. No, it doesn't matter. That 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 is jitta sankara. That's that's doing it like that. Or trying to quiet it all down. The fear of it. Or the um, it's also jitta effect. So it's not just emotion, it's all intuitive, emotive responses, the knee-jerk responses, the assumptions we make. Mm. So, in meditation, we're calming that. So, a sense of like, Buddha Nusati, reflection of recollection of the Buddha, taking refuge, feeling, and the idea of this is, is not deity worship it's about creating a, a, a place of welcome we're all sitting with the Buddha we're sitting under the Buddha the Buddha is our teacher we've got that sense of we belong we're here we're all okay everybody's on board with that there's an there's a enlightened being who's giving us who's given us teaching so all that what that suggests or supposed to suggest anyway is not um, is a uh, worship of a person so much as gathering yourself under an umbrella literally what taking refuge is about so we feel oh, I'm okay here yeah. I'm okay here I can relax here nobody's going to get at me mm. uh, and then the gladness that can come from being uh, feeling connected to uh, a peaceful, joyful, clear being like that. Practicing metta and the Brahma Vihara, so something that tones up uh, emotive qualities. And I'd say emotive is not sentimental, so it's not about gushing. It's much as just having that, that willing to be touched and empathic with others. You don't have to say anything, you don't have to smile, you don't have to you know, come out with particular things, just to sense that you know, other people count, their welfare is significant. Mm. And just keeping in mind with that um, means that whatever else good it does for anybody else, your own chitta becomes less encrusted with doubt, worry, Resentments becomes lighter. That feels pretty good. Yeah. Of course, when we cultivate um, meditation practice, samatha practices, then this also has a, a jitta effect, piti, um, sense of rapture and ease, sukha, as the mind works in a happy, steady way. It becomes has that particular emotive effect.
Third, Kaya Sankara is the bodily formation, bodily impulses, that gathering together the you know, the roughness of the body impulse, the, the surging out uh, of greed, or tightening up of ill will, uh, forcefulness, slothfulness, just you know, cleaning away the excesses, the way this body energy lurches from one extreme to another. You get revved up for the food and then crash out afterwards. So, in this, just the the sitting position, taking the time to steady the body, plant the body, find out how the body sits, make the body upright, you know, relax what isn't necessary. So, it's there's a whole attunement there, isn't it? Sitting, walking, standing, something that can take many years because of the residues of, of um, bad bodily posture or tension in the body. We're clamped, we're tight, we're hunched. So it takes a while. And to make that something that really, you know, you do place uh, significance on because although the karma is really regenerated through the chitta, you know, the karma, the is regenerated through the moods and emotions and emotive effects of what keeps going. But the body provides the energy for that. Yeah. So it's difficult, to, as we all know, to keep a, 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 a happy meditation practice going if your body energy is going out of whack. It's also difficult to stay that upset if your body energy feels relaxed and happy. Difficult to get, you know, you can't, depression doesn't linger. Whereas if your body energy feels drab, sinking, erratic, then quite quickly it conduces to the emotive tone of depression, fed upness, dullness. If your body energy is, is racing and soaring and pushy, then it makes your heart feel jumpy. And the two are very much interconnected. So if your heart, if your jitta is is also passionate or strong or forceful, then your body gets all kinds of signals to give me more energy, so your body starts to rev up. So when you you know the body just gets that signal from the jitta, you know, more energy, more energy, more energy, so you get kind of revved up. How much, um, and then often you can have that for a while, and then perhaps you burn out and then slump. You just notice how much physical energy you can use up in 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 emotions, getting emotionally fraught or upset. How how draining that can be. Even thinking, the Buddha in the sutta says, you know, too much thinking just tires the body, which is a very interesting and perceptive comment. When you think too much, your body gets tired. <laughs> now, you know, from our idea of the body being flesh and bones, you can't, it doesn't make sense. 
you know, how, how can thinking affect your muscles? It doesn't affect your muscles, well, very little, but it does affect your nervous system, doesn't it? So if you're always thinking a lot, then you, your energy gets pulled in that particular way, um, and you get uh, no result, no resources, you get burnt out. These three are all connected. It helps us to understand what is really meant by kaya sankara, body impulse, body formation, and karma in terms of the body. It's this embodied sense. So when we meditate, essentially the thing to do is to to be able to get to the the chitta sankara, the, the impulse of the heart, which is the way the greed or the fear or the aversion or the craving or the conceits and the views are. Those, those are definitely the things that have to be cleaned out, essentially. But because the, all three forms are interconnected, you, it's difficult, you can't really work on the chitta without doing something to the body formation, something to the thinking formation. Start. You won't even really ever get into the jitta sankara if you're just if you're thinking all the time, because it tends to take you away from that. You get lost in the thoughts. The using the going to the body formation helps to 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 curtail the energies or or, or monitor the energies that the jitta uses. This is the body is the energetic resource. So if you calm the body down. It tends to, by that fact alone, um, cool down and steady the heart. And if you say if you maintain a firm and clear monitoring of the of the bodily formation of body impulses and energies, by that fact alone, you you alter or affect the supply and the quality of energy that's coming into the into the to the jitta area. So this has always been a primary um, theme of, of Buddhist meditation. Mm. So something like with Anapanasati, for example, you, you go through all of these, um, the Jitta Sankara, the Kaya Sankara, all explicitly pointed out in that in that process. And the very act of meditating, whatever that is, but the act of what's called understanding, focusing, is the is the mental or the conceptual karma. So we instead of the thinking mind wandering where it's said it's told to keep directing yourself towards breathing in, breathing out, keep clear about that. Are you breathing in or are you breathing out? Breathing in, breathing out. Is it long, is it short? So it's just that that much is what's required just to be clear and to hold steady on that through the period of one whole inhalation and one whole exhalation. So that has a definite effect on the thinking mind. I can think of many, many things in one inhalation. You know, probably write a poem in one inhalation. <laughs> but it's... Uh, so actually just stay on one inhalation, do nothing but that, just you know, it's coming this way and that way, here it is. 
that is really a training in calming and steadying the thinking mind, isn't it? The conceiving mind. So how do we do that? Well, we can either put a mantra on it, Buddha, or we can maybe count, one, two, three, or we could just say, what's happening now? How do I know I'm breathing? And keep that sense of focused inquiry, like, you know, there's no thinking particularly, but there's almost like a thoughtfulness. So one is earnestly considering something, listening to it and picking it up. Where is it now? It's in the chest. Sense of swelling. Tightening. That's the end of it. There's a pause and then, you know, so really staying with and registering what's going on. This is skillful conceptual karma because it it brightens and clarifies and calms the mind. If you're doing that, you're not thinking of other things. And the effect of there's an emotional effect with that, or emotive effect, emotive effect of of um, tranquility, calm. So that effect is one of the bases of pity. Of, of which is uplift or rapture. Yeah. So we can see this and when, when rapture has it, apart from being pleasant, the real meaning of it is almost is conveyed by the word rapt. It means you are actually enwrapped, you know, you're wrapped up, you're caught, you're held, you're holding. There's a real got it, you're with it. You know. So this is the first sign of what we term concentration, samadhi, that sense of that, you're, you're in a flow with something. But, so the, the way that pity comes around, first there's that aspect of it, which is perhaps the most significant, it's just done through the skillful conceptual karma, but there's also the heart aspect, one does feel bright, one does feel confident, one feels this is a good thing to balance all these three come together. Piti, first first aspect of of concentration or collectedness. This is all bright karma. With um, what the most. residual problem people have is getting the right quality of volition going so just acknowledge all calm has volition involved with it so the very meditative act is volition it's got volition in it Uh, and uh, it means that the conceiving mind is is do, do, focus maybe it's quite subtle but do this Um, focus on this we might say just even just volition just to say well don't do anything at all then that's a that's a volitional command isn't it so going to and within that so one can practice with that not doing anything at all <coughs> as a way of 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 massaging our volition this is this is because it has its skills in it because for most people the volitional um, energy, volitional energy, particularly through the thinking mind, is hugely overwrought. 
people are tensed up. By and large, people are tensed <coughs> and push pushed, and their minds race. And there's a whole kind of up here quite with anxiety to get it right. Um, you know, which, which is not just about meditation; it's a whole attitude towards life. You know, life is a struggle. You've got to work hard. You've got to deserve it. You've got to do your best and get out there and make it work for you. And you know, all that kind of notion. And so, there's a driven quality to our to our lives. It's a, life is not something we can just take for granted and have happen to us. You know, this is very much the mindset of the modern, or at least the modern Western world. So your volitional thing is always, you know, tensed up in some way. You can't just let something happen. So many people find that because of this, they're, when you try to meditate, the, the, it goes into that hammer and tongs. And so we often do this kind of seesaw act of hammering away and then sinking down. And then hammering away and then sinking down. And hammering away and sinking down. And eventually just sinking down. <laughs> I think, oh, what the hell, you know, this is just hard work. I didn't come here to do this. You know, just sink. <laughs> and make sinking into a dumber practice, you know. <laughs> And uh, something very <laughs> kind of, I mean, a certain fondness for that. <laughs> throw away, throw away charm. <laughs> but unfortunately, the, the, you think you can keep sinking down. There isn't, it isn't a bottom. You know, you never bottom out. <laughs> it sink, 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 sink. And there's various thoughts and things going. You never actually get to the bottom of your karma through sinking. Uh, you know, still the, the doubts, the worries, the fears, the emotional imbalances still kind of keep coming up. One hasn't actually cleared anything. So, you know, the other way seems that you're too tight, you don't clear anything. If you're too loose, you don't clear anything. Somewhere in the middle, of course, famous, you know, the Buddhist middle, wherever that is. So it's kind of like, you know, just checking the emotional patterns, volition, the worry, the got to get it right so you just take this back to a moment at a time and, and then the other thing is got to get this um, sensation in the nostrils no, no, no just take that back to something like just wherever you feel breathing feel it there or if, you, if that's too much just feeling your body or if that's too much just feeling what's happening for you so you, you can keep changing your attention mode to suit where you feel volitionally fluent, you know, where your your volitional stuff is in a flow, fluid, playful, workable mode. This is important. There are many meditation topics that we can use. And Buddha presented many, and you know, one does notice that he didn't go into a lot of refinement. Oh, for example, with breathing, it's just know you're breathing in, breathing out. It doesn't say anything about where. Or, you know, if you, you should focus, just try to get to the rhythm. To me, that's quite significant because rhythm is, is something that has a heart effect. And one can pick that up as a jitter effect. You know, the brightening, the softening, the repeatedness itself 
you know, without any other quality, any sensation, discernible. Even it's the feeling of my belt tightening or loosening, you know, something there that keeps coming back is easily noted. Or, you know, just the structure of the body. And as we come into that, we can feel, you know, from that sort of fairly relaxed, pliable, volitional quality, the attention can then pick up things like elements. This feels solid. This bit feels warm. This is what movement's about. This feels flowing. This feels supple. Elemental, earth, fire, air, water. This is space. So we can, you know, keep the conceptual karma attending in this way. So it's connecting to this bodily experience. Uh, because of the connection with those two, the, inter- the chitta sankara is then mollified, held together moderated, comforted, clarified. Mm. One feels contained, one feels happy. The wild lurches of the heart can be soothed. From my personal experience, which you can take it or leave it, um, is that when when breathing in and out, there are different signs or, or uh, modes that, you, that can be experienced, I can experience anyway. Um, and in my practice, I find this very useful in, in contemplating Breathing and in terms of the kaya sankara, the bodily impulse, the bodily formative tendency. Um, so, first one can recognize fairly easily the what we might say the, the purely the physical or fleshly aspects of breathing out, the swelling of the chest or the abdomen, which comes in a repeated pattern. As you contemplate that, you can feel perhaps even more a slight tightening of the skin and relaxing. So you get that physical shift of pressures. There's also the flow of air, which you can feel flowing through the nose, down the back of the throat. And there's also an energetic effect, which is as you breathe in, you get a brightening effect. As you breathe out, you get a calming, quietening effect. Those are three strata um, and it's significant because the, the what the kaya sankara bodily impulse formation is is defined in the scriptures as breathing in breathing out is bound up with or is or equals or is clo- is correlated to the the bodily formation so it's all captured in that Now, normally we conceive of, from our normal way of 
reckoning, seeing things, which is very eye-oriented towards physical forms, that you see this shape called a body, and what you know through school is bodies breathe in and breathe out, and the lungs fill up. So come, here comes, you know, the lungs fill up, breathe out again, that's it, that's breathing. It's what bodies do. So we, we tend to be stuck on this perceptual map of a body. Um, you know, if we just put that aside, say, well, right now, you know, forget all that stuff, then what is your body right now? I mean, your eyes are closed, what is your body right now? And there are all kinds of trembles and surges and puddles and pools and flows and flushes and tingles and throbs going on. If you're alive, they is. So, you know, and it also is quite intelligent. It seems to recognize there's a slight retracting here because that feels uncomfortable. Um, it seems to know what to do. You know, when it feels tight, it maybe loosens. Uh, when it needs to breathe in, it breathes in. It never mixes the two up. It never breathes out when it wants to breathe in. It, it, so it, it's an, a whole system there that regenerates itself. That whole process, we might say, is the body karma, is the kayaful. And breathing in and breathing out is right at the center of that as an energetic experience. It's the breathing in and breathing out that turns the lights on, the thing flushes. The whole thing receives that. Um, We go back to our biology books, we recognize that when you breathe in, the blood is oxygenated, and and that is not just a lung business. Every bit of the body gets a share. So when you, you know, when you breathe in and breathe out, the oxygen of that is a whole body thing, isn't it? It spreads to the whole body. When you breathe out all the used up carbon dioxide from everywhere, it gets breathed out. It's not just your, it goes out through your lungs, but the lungs are not the only thing that's breathing in and breathing out. Everything is breathing in and breathing out. So we recognize that the breathing um, experience is, is really, all the whole body is involved and wrapped up in that. Everything is refreshed, everything tingles, everything is centered on that. Uh, if you stop breathing, the whole body panics, not just the lungs. Everything tightens up. So we contemplate the sutta, it says, one tries to focus on the long breath, the length of the breath, the full inhalation, exhalation. And as the breath quietens, some of breathing is shorter, more refined, and then breathing out sensitive to the entire body. Kaya Pati Sangwedi is actually sensing how the whole of the bodily experience modulates in accordance with breathing. So it's like a not really locational. You're not focusing on a particular point. There's a whole you know, sense of just being aware of your whole body as it's affected by breathing. And then the fourth point of that is calming 
of bodily formation, which is as you as you gather the whole body together, the whole bodily experience together, then how to quieten it down, take out the jangles, the tensions, the rough patches, the sleepy bits, and the whole thing is in line, and then it begins to settle and feel comfortable. Um, so it seems that the kind of the different signs you can get with that, as that experience happens, the mind jitter tends to produce trig- uh, signs or perceptions. Um, the one, the one is uh, visual, we get a kind of quality of bl- brightness or luminosity. One of them is auditory, you get a ringing tone, uh, which is a, a sound, sound of silence, ringing resonance tone. Um, and third is somatic, that you get an energetic uh, charge through the body. So you feel slightly plugged in, you know. Um, so then though these are, these are what are called signs or limiters. And they become things that you can then act almost as the sum total you know, encrypted, annotated form of this is what's happening. You know, there's there's a lot of brightness here. There's a big charge here. Um, you know, it's very powerful here, or it's subtle here, or it's wavering. So you can then focus on that as much as your entry to the whole body experience. You try to just quiet it, soothe it, soften it. So it becomes something that's easy when you when you then you can always enter into that quality of ease and metaphorically speaking just sit down in it and this is the quality of sukha when you really sit down in that then you come to the experience of ekagata which is <coughs> which is one pointedness means something seems very strong uh, it's not strong in a domineering way you just feel really um Solid, and the mind doesn't stop thinking. You know, all that energy is just captured into the into the the um, body and heart presence. So, kind of spool back a bit. Dealing with the, the hindrances, and say the lurching effect you know, of the imbalances, the restlessness, hyperstates and hypostates, drowsiness, dullness, not really being able to get it together, uh, feel connected. Primary thing must be um, bodily when you come into that kind of roughness of, of effect, just coming to the body and holding the body up, sensing the body from the base of the spine all the way up through the head. Um, and doing that in a, in a calm and repeated way till you feel the body is something you can rely on. Um, so there's things like you know, the ill will, which isn't necessarily malice, but it can be just a fed up, dreary, bored, negative, anxious, contracted state of heart. You know, I don't want to have to do this stupid thing hour after hour. 
then you know let's get looks like a bit of TLC could be useful here um, loving kindness reflection on the border sense of you know Kalyanamita anything that, that gives that sense of uplift to the heart um, Um, covetousness and ill will uh, covetousness the ability to um, consider wisely is it you know just what it feels like when there's any kind of greed or ambition or lust there's always the the sense of when you get to that state or you have that object then wow that would be really nice you get the hit and so it's always yeah, just get just feel what that feels like. It was promises your payoff, and I mean we must have followed this one so many hundreds of times in many ways. And you're like, yeah, you do get the little poof, but then it, how long for <laughs> before it? Is, uh, so just what does it feel like to have that kind of, you know? So it's something that's just, just that will come out of that pull. So we steer back to the to meditation thing, something we can find comfort and satisfaction in. So when you can work with these, the quality, the doubt, and the uncertainty about how to meditate or what meditation is or what good karma is or why bother in the first place um, is quelled. You really understand directly for yourself. This is why goodness is good. It feels good. It makes you feel good. And this is what it is. It's in doing this. And this is what is affected by it. The heart, the body, the thinking mind, they're all part of that. The eradication of doubt, one's practice becomes affirmed. And then, if it's just sitting, feeling the body, contemplating the elements, walking up and down, taking one inhalation, one exhalation, whatever it is, there's a sense of um, gladness, appropriateness about the practice. And from that gladness, the heart is relaxed, and the meditative possibilities start to open up from that happy, relaxed heart place. You're not so constricted or confused. So naturally, receptors, your receptors are more clear, and you can pick up, you know, more mindfully some of these meditative skills and areas. <coughs> 